0: Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Good day, everyone. Thank you for joining us for a very special episode. This episode will be our 30th. Yes, 30th episode. We look forward to bringing you many more. But I want to take this time to thank all of our guests, including some of our Kentucky Room staff, including Wayne Johnson, who we have here today, as well as Denise Shanks and J.P. Johnson. But most of all, I want to thank Erin West. <laughs> she, You guys don't hear her very often here. She is behind the screen doing all the editing and making us sound so well. So thank you, Erin. We look forward to bringing you many, many more episodes so today we are going to be talking about cassius clay wayne johnson is here to tell us a little bit more about the lion of whitehall he was well known as an emancipationist and abolitionist but he was a very colorful character right wayne
1: oh yeah (laughs) cassius marcellus clay was a 19th century kentuckian who led a very interesting life Clearly. yeah Clay, he was many things, including an abolitionist, a newspaper editor, a Kentucky state legislator. Uh, He was a diplomat. He was an orator, a war veteran, and last but certainly not least, a fighter for what he believed in. He was known for his combative nature. As he once said, I have never courted trouble with anyone, but I have never gone out of the way to avoid it. And that's how he lived his life.
0: Well, where did his life start? Was it here in, in Lexington?
1: Like you said, he was known as the the Lion of Whitehall, and you better pronounce Lion correctly in front of <laughs> if you were in front of him or else you're in for a fight for sure. But he was the son of a noted general of the war of eighteen twelve, General Green Clay, and Cassius was born on in Richmond, Kentucky, or in Madison County, Kentucky, on October nineteenth, eighteen ten. Now his father, Green Clay, was a very wealthy man in his life. He owned vast acres of land, farmland, and many slaves. And Cassius was brought up with this wealth. He was a privileged child. He was educated through private tutors, academies, went to Transie, and he graduated from Yale in 1832. He then came back and received a law degree at Transylvania. Now, it was at Yale that clay heard fiery abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison Given an anti-slavery talk, and Clay heeded the call that Garrison was calling for the end of slavery. He was convinced by what he heard. Yes. He spent a good portion of his adult life denouncing slavery, and this led him to having many enemies. He was mainly known for his abolitionist views and, of course, his willingness to fight for those views. Now, Clay had many interesting episodes in his life due to his anti-slavery philosophy and his dynamic personality. Now, when insults were hurled his way, he did not hesitate to fight. He was very smart, but he had a temper and he had a code of honor about him. And like I said, this led to many interesting and sometimes violent encounters during his lifetime. One of the episodes in his early life was in 1833 when he proposed to Mary Jane Warfield, who was the daughter of Elijah Warfield, of the Meadows fame. Before the wedding, he was shown a letter by Mary Jane's mom. Uh, Now, she could have been trying to stir up trouble since she was not wholly convinced Cassius Clay was the best one suited for her <laughs> daughter and their family. But anyway, Mary Jane's mom showed Cassius a letter from a former suitor of Mary Jane's that insulted Clay. In this letter he wrote all kinds of insults about Clay. Well, That's not good. She showed him the letter <laughs> shortly before the marriage. Now she probably would have been better off, you know, throwing it away sure. and not showing it for whatever reason <laughs> she showed it to Clay. So anyway, this guy lived in Louisville And he was a doctor there. And Clay went to Louisville and tracked him down and then had words with him. And then they had a fight in the streets. Clay had a cane with him, and he whipped this guy with his cane. Of course, offered a duel if this guy, decided to challenge him. And this was like right before the marriage. And (laughs) I think the doctor wanted to arrange a duel on the day of the marriage. Oh, and, the, wow. I think Clay was actually giving it some thought about whether you wanted Maybe to Maybe it's not a, so smart. Wanted <laughs> to do a duel and get married on the same day but <laughs> Anyway, he he thought better of it, just dropped it at that point. Now, after he was married, soon after, word got back to Cassius Clay that this former suitor in Louisville was still insulting him, I think through the newspapers, possibly. So he went back to Louisville to have a duel with him. And the doctor backed off and very soon afterwards committed suicide. So instead of facing Clay in a duel, he committed suicide. But that's one of the episodes Clay had early in his life. Yeah, he, oh yeah, he had plenty. Now, most of his fights were the result of his anti-slavery opinions. That did not go over well with many Kentuckians who were slaveholders, and it led to many conflicts with him. He had a lot of enemies, and he had a lot of threats on his life, especially when he would give anti-slavery speeches throughout Kentucky. Now, once before a speech in Stanford, Kentucky, which I believe is Lincoln County, the courthouse there... He received a threat, and he expected trouble. Mm -hmm. So trouble did not intimidate Clay. Uh, I think he actually (laughs) thrived in it. Yeah, the more trouble, the the better he reacted. Now, as the legend is told about this speech he gave in Stanford, Kentucky, he arrived for the speech at the courthouse and walked down the aisle toward the speaker's lectern carrying a bag. Now, at the speaker's stand, he opened up his bag and he removed a Bible and told the crowd, for those who have respect for the laws of God, I have this argument. He put the Bible down and pointed toward it. He then took out a copy of the Constitution and laid it down and pointed toward it and said, for those who believe in the laws of men, I have this argument and pointing toward the Constitution. Finally, he laid two pistols in the middle of the lectern and crossed his bowie knife, which he was famous for, over them, and said, And for those who believe in neither the laws of God nor man, I have this argument. And <laughs> pointed toward his weapons. Wow. Uh, and according to a writer of the episode, he had no trouble. And the writer said, Only the foolish attempted to tangle with Cassius Clay. Now, during an interview with Clay later in his life, when he was very old, He did not totally deny this story, but did say he would not have put his weapons within reach of of his enemy. Now, you may ask if this is normal bluster and did he ever use his bowie knife. Well, one episode dramatizes that better than any other, and we'll, we'll get to it here shortly. In 1841, he got into it over slavery with Robert Wycliffe Jr., whose father, Robert the Duke Wycliffe, was one of the largest slave owners in Kentucky. They had a duel in Jefferson County, but no one was hurt. They both missed, but they remained enemies. Well, you fast forward two years to 1843, and there was a political rally at Russell Cave here in Lexington, or in Fayette County at the time, and Clay was giving a speech. He and a person by the name of Samuel Brown went at it. Brown was reputed to be a hired assassin from New Orleans who was hired to do harm to Clay.
0: So somebody from all the way from New Orleans contacted yeah. this person to assassinate yeah. Clay.
1: Okay. They took,
0: took it seriously. Wow.
1: Yes. They went at it. Clay charged toward Brown after Brown had pulled out a pistol. And almost at point blank, Brown shot at Clay. And luckily for Clay, his Bowie knife scabbard deflected the bullet. It was like right there at his heart. And if his scabbard, which he held his knife in, had not been there, it would have killed him instantly. Yeah. Well, it didn't, and he went about carving up Brown. There was a big mob there, and they were throwing things at him. Now, I won't go into the graphic details of what Clay did to Brown with his bowie knife, but the mob, to save Brown from further damage, actually hurled his body over a fence and down toward a creek so that Clay couldn't get to him anymore, couldn't do any more damage. Wow! Now, I was deciding the best way to describe what Clay did to Brown with his Bowie knife, and it finally came to me how I do it. So bear with me a bit here, because okay. I'm going to stray a bit, a bit. But we all remember the toy Mr. Potato Head. Mr. Potato Head was an American toy. Oh, by the way, Mr. Potato Head was the first toy ever advertised. On- On television, I think 1952. Okay,
0: that's good to know. Anyway,
1: Mr. Potato Head was an American toy consisting of a plastic model of a potato, which can be decorated with a variety of plastic parts that can be attached to the main body. These parts usually included ears, eyes, shoes, a hat, a nose, and a mouth. Well... The best way to describe what Clay did to Brown was he played Mr. Potato Head in reverse. Oh. It was pretty gruesome.
0: And this is recorded in newspapers. And yeah. It, oh, yes, yeah. So yes. this is, we know this happened. Yeah.
1: Now, Brown actually survived. And of course, he was scarred for life. Mm-hmm. And Clay went on trial and was acquitted, even though there was pro-slavery men on the jury mm-hmm. who were probably inclined to convict him. Mm-hmm. But he, he was defended by his cousin, Henry Clay, who oh, was goodness. well thought of in the community. So he was acquitted.
0: He had a good lawyer.
1: <laughs> yes, he did have probably one of the best lawyers. To take the Bowie Knife theme a little further, in the 1860s, Clay actually published a book entitled The Technique of Bowie Knife Fighting. Yes, oh. he wrote a book on Bowie Knife Fighting.
0: He turned it into a skill.
1: Yes. Now, I don't think it was a bestseller or anything <laughs> anything like that, and I'm not sure he got many takers for a book tour, but Clay knew about using the Bowie Knife. Now, this was in 1843. Let me go back a few years. He did serve in the Kentucky legislature during the mid to late 1830s. And after this fight with Samuel Brown, he actually, in 1844, when his cousin Henry Clay was running for president, he toured the north for Henry Clay. Okay. Uh, So campaigning, basically. Campaigning. Of course, with his anti-slavery views, they did not dare send him down south to help Clay campaign. But Now, the Lexington Observer and Reporter, which, by the way, we have on microfilm here at the Lexington Public Library. That's a little plug for the library there. They had closed its columns to Clay because they thought his anti-slavery opinions were militant and provocative. So as a result, Clay decided to publish his own newspaper, The True American. Now he did not limit himself just to speech making and political campaigns. He he decided he was going to become an editor with the publication of, of the True American and Anti-Slavery newspaper. Its first issue was published on June 3rd, 1845. Yes, in a nod to lovers of Golden Ode's music from the nineteen sixties, yes, it was the third of June. <laughs> Now, the offices of the True American were located at number 6 North Mill Street. Of course, this newspaper did not go over well with the pro-slavery crowd. Clay knew to expect trouble, and he and some of his friends prepared the newspaper office for any possible raid or siege. Basically, he made a little fort there at his newspaper office. He was bound to destroy his enemies if it came to that. Mm-hmm. Now, there's an interesting description in a book about Cassius Clay that described how he armed his uh, newspaper office. Let me just read you a little bit of it here. Clay and his friends lined the outside doors and window shutters of the building with sheet iron to prevent burning. He purchased two small brass cannons at Cincinnati, loaded them to the muzzle with bullets, slugs, and nails, and placed them breast-high on a table at the entrance, directly across from double doors opening in the middle and fastened with a chain, so that only one person at a time could make his way in to certain death." Now Mexican lances and an ample number of musket lined the walls of the printing office. In the event these measures should fail to stop a lawless entry, he arranged an escape by trapdoors leading to the roof and across buildings. He reserved a keg of powder with which to blow the establishment and everybody in it into atoms when resistance became no longer possible. He was going to blow people to smithereens. Oh, he meant business, yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> Now, anyway, the first issue was published under the motto of God and Liberty, and he stated that our press shall not be suppressed, and he saved his most dire warning to his arch enemy, old Duke Wycliffe, with a reminder. He said, old man, remember Russell Cave. (laughs) Going back to the Samuel Brown.
0: As the young people would say now, that's throwing shade right there. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. If there was going to be any bloodshed or violence, Clay was ready for it. So anyway, after the first issue was published, and by the way, we do have the True American here at the library on oh, microfilm yes. in yeah. the Kentucky room. Mm-hmm. So I actually looked through it a few days ago. and.
0: Was he the only one that wrote in that newspaper, or did he have a staff?
1: Well, he he had helpers. I don't know if they were helping to keep the pro-slavery people out of the office or were actually...
0: Contributing yeah. to the newspaper. I don't think
1: they had any comics in oh, that, in
0: that, or <laughs> no.
1: sports uh, features. <laughs> I don't think so. But. He did have some men here in the community that helped him. Now, after the first issue, the famous newspaper man, Horace Greeley, held the true American as the first paper which ever bearded the monster in his den and dared him to a most unequal encounter. You know, you have to remember, slavery was a burning, important issue of the day. And here it is, Cassius Clay's right smack in the middle of a, a slave-holding state. Yes, and yet he dared to uh, publish this newspaper,
0: and but also his family owned his slaves, so his his father and yeah, oh yes. Yeah, yeah. and he
1: he owned them for a time. Yeah. so he talked to talk and walked to walk. Now, in one of his newspaper articles, Clay had explained his views on slavery. He said, "Slavery is a municipal institution; it exists by no other right and tenure than the Constitution of Kentucky." I am opposed to depriving slaveholders of their slaves by any other than constitutional and legal means. Of course, then, I have no sympathy for those who would liberate the slaves in Kentucky in other ways. Clay was opposed to slavery, but he thought the best way to end it was using the legal constitutional methods. not
0: So constitutional amendment instead of...
1: Yeah. He thought using the law was the best approach. And that's what he was using his paper for, to try to get people to see his views on, of course, the citizens... The pro-slavery people did not take very well to Clay's newspaper. And a couple months after it started publication, a committee of some of Lexington's finest citizens got together and had a meeting and decided that they were going to uh, get the press out of Lexington, Kentucky. Now, at the time, Clay contracted typhoid fever. So he was bedridden. These guys were smart enough to know if they were going to pull anything they would do it when Clay was in such Frederick. a state. Yeah. So in August, they raided the office and sent the press and all the equipment up to Cincinnati. Now, if Clay, if they had tried that, if Clay was healthy, I, you know, no telling what would happen to this community, because I don't think Clay would have backed down and there would have been a huge tragedy. Then after Clay got well, they actually published the newspaper up in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Clay was a pragmatic Person, yeah, I know he had a temper and all that, but I think he was wise enough to know that, you know, you can't destroy Lexington, Kentucky, get your views across, and that's what he probably would have had to do, you know, taking on that committee press ended, the True American. Ended up in Cincinnati, and he still published the newspaper, and it was still delivered to Lexington citizens and so forth. I think that ended up as best it could. The paper was in publication for a couple years. And then the Mexican-American War of 1846 came about, and Clay served in that. He was a captain and was a hero during the war, served very, very distinctly. Now, when he got back from the war, he continued his anti-slavery speeches, another episode near richmond kentucky kind of in between richmond and lexton on the turnpike there and he thought he was on friendly grounds because richmond's of course his hometown his so he felt a little safer so he decided to leave his pistols at home uh but he still had his bowie knife and someone in the crowd, a person by the name of Cyrus Turner, called him a liar when he jumped off. The, he was giving a speech, anti-slavery speech, and he was standing on the table and he jumped down and Cyrus Turner approached him, called him a liar, and they went at it. And shots were fired. Clay was stabbed and uh, was almost near death. But he got a few uh, okay. hits in on Cyrus Turner. Mm-hmm. And Cyrus Turner ended up dying, Clay survived.
0: Now I read that it was it was Cyrus and his brothers, so there was like six. Oh yeah, brothers. yeah, there's my yeah. There's a lot it
1: always them. seemed these fights that I you know, I just talk about one person, but it always seems like these fights Clay got into <laughs> there was, was more a, than one person. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how in the world he got through some of these things and lived to tell about it, but was he
0: tried for this death, for for Cyrus's death as well or
1: I don't think so because I think he was the one attacked. I don't think the Cyrus Turner, at least I didn't see anything mm-hmm. in my research that, but I could be wrong. But I do know Cyrus Turner was killed and Clay was almost killed. So I think it was like a self defense type yeah. of situation. So, you know, he had all those troubles and it's amazing he got through them. fast forward a little bit into the Civil War era. Now, Clay was not all about fighting and violence. Okay. He was a very smart man. I actually would make the argument if He did not have his passionate views about slavery. He possibly could have, if he'd done the normal politician type of doublespeak and so forth, he could have become governor, senator, or, you know, even president of the United States. He was was that smart.
0: Now, recently, he's he's criticized he wasn't necessarily anti-slavery because he was for African-Americans' rights. It's just more that this was hurting the poor white farmer.
1: Yeah, yeah, it— for him, as a pragmatic thing, I think part of it was the humane approach that he, did, he didn't think people should be enslaved, but he also made the argument that it hurt the economic well-being of small farmers. He did bring up that yeah. argument. I think he could have been anything he wanted to be in politics mm-hmm. if he did not go down the anti-slavery path.
0: The way that he did. But he, yeah. f- he
1: felt in his heart that's what he needed to do. Mm-hmm. And it turns out he was right. It's like Henry Clay said, I'd rather be right than president. And yeah. I think that was Cassius Clay's approach. I'd rather be right on this than reap Successful. any kind of office. Yeah. So now he had a kinder, gentler side to him. Really? Uh, yes he did. Now during the eighteen sixties he was appointed minister to Russia and he served for seven years. He and Abraham Lincoln knew each other and Lincoln respected him and he helped Lincoln get elected. And of course, He expected something out of it. Now, there was talk that he was going to become Lincoln's Secretary of War right before the Civil War broke out. But Abe did not think that was a good idea. Appointing Cassius Clay with his anti-slavery views, Secretary of War, would be like declaring war on the South even before the hostilities began at Fort Sumter in April of 1861. He didn't think that would be a good idea. So instead, he offered Clay minister's job. I think at first it was to Spain, and Clay didn't want anything to do with that. But he offered him to become minister to Russia, and Clay accepted. Now, one of his directives as minister was to use his influence to ensure the Russians did not interfere in the civil war on the Confederate side. Yes, it's true, Cassius Clay was involved in Russian influence with our civil war. But he spent seven years. I think he was over in Russia for a couple years and then came back and Lincoln appointed him a major general. And then he went back to Russia and he was well liked in, in Russia. Clay, for all his troubles, was a aristocrat. You know, he knew how to mingle with upper class. Yeah. You know, he, he did a good job with it. Now, when he came back to America after his first year and a half or two years, Lincoln had asked his opinion about uh, how Kentucky would handle if he proclaimed the emancipation proclamation. Lincoln was filling Clay out on how do you think Kentucky will handle this cuz mm-hmm. Lincoln didn't want to lose Kentucky to the south yeah. over this and and Clay apparently told him to go ahead it would be fine and there's lots of People in Kentucky will stand by you, uh, and so forth. And that apparently that played a big part in the proclamation being made in, I think, January 1st of 1963. 1863. 1863, <laughs> correct. Thank you for correcting me on that. Oh, I never would have expected it of Cassius Clay, but he took to ballet. Really? when he was in Russia you know ballet's really yes, big, very big and, in there, sure. and he would attend the performances and later on hooked up maybe this was the reason he got interested in apparently hooked up with a ballerina and had a child with her and the child eventually came to Kentucky after the war and lived with Cassius Clay. He eventually got a divorce from his wife, Mary Jane Warfield, after like 40 years of marriage, and they had 10 children together. But you know, Clay did just fine in, in Russia, and he, he seemed to be with his own element. But he was also instrumental in getting Russia and the U.S. to agree on the sale of Alaska, which is... You know, major. Yes,
0: I read about that. Yeah, yeah. major
1: deal. Yeah. So Clay was always behind the scenes on these big events, slavery and the purchase of Alaska or the Emancipation Proclamation. But he was he was very influential in all these big events. Now, after the war, of course, slavery had ended, so Clay, you know, his main thing in life was to end slavery. And once that was ended, he pretty much did some campaigning for candidates in one of the presidential elections. He was heavily involved in, in that, and he would go out and still make speeches and, and so forth. But that doesn't mean that his conflicts ended. There was still plenty of time, even though he was getting up there in age, he still had some, his battles, which brings us to the next episode in Cassius Clay's life. And that was 1894. Now, at this time, Clay was 84 years old. And there was a tenant farmer on his farm who had a sister, Dora Richardson, and Clay took an immediate
0: liking to her.
1: Now, the, the, only, the only trouble with this in today's society, back then it was more acceptable, I guess. Yeah. But it was still kind of looked Ify. upon as what's going on. She was 15 years old. Oh my goodness. And Clay is 84. Apparently, they, they loved one another. But lawmen in, in Masson County thought she was being held against her will. Mm. And they came to visit Clay at Whitehall his his, uh, mansion in in Madison County. And a shootout occurred. The sheriff had brought seven people there. Actually, Dora had yelled out the window that I'm here on my own accord. I want to be here. But the sheriff and his officers were there to take her away. And, of course, Cassius Clay wasn't going to have any of that. There were seven of them. And I think maybe Clay had a couple people with him in his house and a shootout occurred and the officers, all seven of them, were stunned and fled the scene after being shot at numerous times by Clay. Now, in a subsequent report to the county judge, the sheriff was asked, you know, what happened this shootout and why couldn't you get her out of the house? And the sheriff recommended to the judge, the county judge that he wrote the report to, he recommended that the only way that Clay was going to be taken was if he sent in a couple companies of state militia. (laughs) Let me just read you his report that the sheriff wrote to the judge explaining what happened. Judge John C. Chenault, dear judge, I am reporting about the posse like you said I had to. Judge, we went out to Whitehall, but we didn't do no good. It was a mistake to go out there with only seven men. Judge, the general was awful mad, meaning General Clay. He got to cussing and, and a shooting, and we had to shoot. I thought we hit him two or three times, but don't guess, we did. He didn't act like it. We come out right good, considering I'm having some misery from two splinters of wood in my side. <laughs> Dick Collier was hurt a little when his shirt tail and breeches was shot off by a piece of horseshoe and nails come out of that old cannon. He was shooting a cannon at a <laughs> uh, Have you seen Jack? He was an unidentified member of the posse. He wrenched his neck and shoulder when his horse throwed him as we, as we were getting away. Now, Judge, I think you'll have to go to Frankfurt and see Brown, John Young Brown, who was actually governor at the time. If he could send Captain Longmire up here with two light fielders, meaning divisions.
0: Divisions, yeah.
1: If he could divide his men, send some with the cannon around to the front of the house, not too close so, and the others around through the cornfield and up around the cabins. And Springhouse, to the back porch, I think this might do it. (laughs) Respectfully, Josiah Simmons, high sheriff. I I can't believe I'm
0: laughing at this violence. (laughs) But it's just.
1: And he, he he concluded by telling Judge it was a mistake to go there with only seven men <laughs> only seven against Cassius Clay.
0: And his cannon.
1: Yeah. Oh, and Lord. this is when, uh, when Clay had his interview with a reporter. He had a famous interview in 1891. And this is when he had the famous quote that I said earlier, I have never courted a trouble with anyone, but I've never gone out of my way to avoid it. Now, in 1981, the Lexington Herald did a retrospective story about Cassius Clay, And they headlined it, even at age 90, fiery Cassius Clay was someone to avoid. And apparently, there was another story. In 1901, one of Clay's daughters had sent the sheriff's posse out to Whitehall to get some furniture and a shootout occurred. Uh So he had numerous shootouts while at Whitehall. And at this point, you know, you got to start thinking, well, he was paranoid and he's getting an old age and he was half blind during the 1901 episode. Mm -hmm. And he kept, yelling the word vendetta he, he thought people were out to get him why i got no given his life i got no <laughs> idea why he would come to that conclusion but he kept his guns nearby and he always armed himself with the bowie knife one interesting story too near the time of his death he was in his room big fly was in his room and he just got a, a rifle and shot it <laughs> yeah he was able to hit it oh wow and there's a story too which is close to my heart that he would let bats into his <laughs> he was so lonely he would let bats into his room he'd open up the shutters just to hear them flutter through the room that's how he was in his older age days now when he was approaching death in July of 1903 it was around the same time that Pope Leo XIII was also on his deathbed mm. And Central Kentuckians being the gambling type that they are, mm-hmm. some of them started betting on who would last the longest, Cassius Clay or the Pope and Cassius Clay ended up dying like two days after the Pope, so he won, and he actually I guess you could say this is one of the first over under bets <laughs> uh, under being six feet under, but he died two days after the Pope and mm-hmm made the comment something along the lines of, well, I won, I outlived the Pope, and I'm not even infallible. But he, of course, like all of us, he did eventually meet his maker on July 22nd, 1903. On the night that he died, a terrible storm hit the area. Tornado-like winds, rain coming down in drenches, thunder and lightning. And actually, his cousin, Henry Clay's statue over here at the Lexington Cemetery, a lightning bolt hit the head of Henry Clay's statue, and the head fell off on the night that Cassius Clay died or the night after. And, you know, normally when someone dies, you know, it is said that they they can now rest in peace. Well, when Clay died, it was said that the still-living sheriff in Madison County could rest in peace. (laughs) That, you know, that was his life. And lots of conflict. He did a lot of good. And like I said before, I think he, if he had just, if he wasn't quite so combative, he, he could have gone a long way, and even further than he did in politics. Now, let me say something about Whitehall, the house he lived in, yes. because it's a state historic mm-hmm. landmark here in Madison mm-hmm. County. And it was built in two parts. His father, Greenclay, built the first part in 1798-99, and it was called Claremont. Mm-hmm. And in the 1860s, Cassius Clay owned it. He added onto it and renamed it Whitehall. It's interesting, one of the architects for the addition that Clay built on was Thomas Lewinsky, the famous architect from Lexington. And he was the father of Carrie Lewinsky, who in the 1890s became the first woman head librarian at the Lexington Library. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I got to get my plugs in for our library. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) And now after Clay's death, Whitehall fell into disrepair. And it was only after it was donated to the Kentucky State Government, I think in 1967 Mm -hmm. or thereabouts, that they started doing some work on it. Beulah Nunn, the mother of Governor Louis Nunn, who was elected in 1967, led a project And it returned Whitehall to its better days, and it's now a state historic landmark. I always think that First Ladies don't get enough credit for the work they do. Like Lady Bird Johnson did a great job as First Lady with beautifying or trying to beautify America with Mm -hmm. her projects. And... She did a great job, doesn't get a lot of credit. And Beulah Nunn is another one who did a great job with the White Hall renovation and making it become a… Yeah, it's a beautiful place. She was an outstanding first lady. But there you have it, Cassius Clay.
0: Well, he definitely lived an interesting life. I mean, I could totally see his life being turned into some sort of series or something because it's a a lot. There's a lot in there, a lot of conflicts, but also a lot of good. Like you said, I read that he was a part of nationalizing the railroads and he donated a lot of acreage for Berea.
1: Yes, I felt to mention that. He, he played a major part, you know, not only with the Alaska, buying of Alaska and the other things he was involved with, he was instrumental in getting Berea. He donated the land for Berea College. Yes. And I'm glad you mentioned yeah. that.
0: And at the time, Berea College was, of course, open to all races. Yes.
1: And it's interesting, I think, if you put it together, I think it was the day law which prohibited integrated education mm-hmm. was passed about the time that Cassius Clay died. Makes you wonder if he was still around, if he would have had any influence on that decision. Yeah. But yeah, he
0: has an interesting character, whether that was at home or internationally as well. So yeah. thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your research with us, Wayne. You're welcome. And thank you for listening.
1: And congratulations on the 30th podcast.
0: Yes. Yes. Congratulations to us. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm, or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at dot I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.